There are children of the darkness and there are children of the light. I was born in the dark with monsters. And to survive, I became a bit of a monster. And then at a certain point in my life, I stepped into the world of the light and out of the world of monsters. And I had to learn how to survive. Welcome to The Impossible Man, the true story of how the inability to move allowed one person to trade his humanity for odds-defying superpowers, and how he clawed his way back. Hey everybody, my name is Johnny B. Truant. I will be playing host for what I believe is going to be a very interesting behind-the-scenes look at a project that I am doing with and for John Morrow. Now, if you don't know either one of us, I am a fiction author. I have written over 100 books. I've been doing this for about 10 or 12 years. John Morrow is a kind of a copywriting guy, kind of a content marketing guy, a writing guy, a blogger, a guy who teaches blogging, a consultant, um, general all-around internet badass, I would say. That's certainly how I met him. But what it took me a long time to realize after hearing John's reputation and just thinking of him as this larger-than-life personality was that he actually can't move anything but his face. I just knew what was inside first. And that that's unusual because with somebody like John, usually people see what's outside first. They see that he is in not just a wheelchair, not just a power wheelchair, but a power wheelchair that he operates and drives exclusively by blowing into and sucking on a small tube. He has a condition called spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, which is sort of a cousin to ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. SMA is a little bit more mobile than that, but not very mobile at all. With just his face and his voice, he has built a multi-million dollar business and just generally been one of the most unstoppable people that I have ever met. John, being a writer and being somebody who has a way of uh, knocking people onto their ass with his writing, has written several posts about his condition and about being unstoppable in a way that it's kind of astonishing how unstoppable he is. And it's not just within the realms of his disease. He is unstoppable personally regardless. It's John's mentality that has made things that seem to be entirely impossible possible. He has defied what seem like impossible odds over and over again, both with things that seem to be within volitional control and things that seem like nobody could control them, like his health. John has survived close brushes with death many times. He has been told by doctors many times that he would not live through a given ordeal. He's somebody with a, an attitude that has somehow transformed his physical reality. I know how that sounds, but it, it is true. And as you listen to this series, you'll find it. So publishers and others have been on John to tell this story for a long time. And he keeps procrastinating. He keeps not doing it. He knows that it could be an instant bestseller. He knows that he could get a very large advance for it. But delving in, even as a writer, even though he's a very good writer and even though he has a very good story, delving into it, actually penning the words would be too painful. And so John asked me if I would co-write the book with him. We thought it might be interesting to record the process of me discovering John's story. And there's a very particular slant to that because uncovering his story could mean recounting the events in his life as they occur. And this is very different from that. Just recounting the story in an autobiography doesn't really give you the lesson. And John and I really wanted to convey 
sort of how this unstoppable personality was forged and how to do the impossible. But in order to do that, we need to see how the listener can relate to John as a person from where they stand, where things that are impossible tend to remain impossible. And that's one of the reasons that John wanted to work with me, a fiction author, to write this book, is because I believe that life is a story and that there's a lot of noise that crowds what could be a character arc as if it were designed by an author. But most people don't see it because of all of the noise, because of all of the competing stimuli in our world. But if you delve deep, and I've written a whole book about this called The Story Solution, co-written with Sean Platt, where we talk about picking out the pieces of life that, when assembled together, can be a cogent story arc. You as the protagonist, you have an inciting incident at the beginning. You have a first act climax. You have a midpoint. You have a second act climax. You have an emotional arc that needs to be developed to reach your fullest potential. And when John started thinking about that, and we started looking at John Morrow as a character, not fictional, but in real life, you can clear away the noise and see that he had an emotional arc that not only made this possible, but that highlights what could have been a potential tragedy in his life, not as his health, but instead as something entirely different. Because we're both entrepreneurs, because we both think outside the box, we decided that we wanted to record the process of uncovering John's story so that you'll see how it came about and just kind of to see if people are interested in it. And that's what this is. This is a pilot. Now, in subsequent episodes of this, if everybody enjoys this and we want to continue it, I have the act markers of John as a character. I know when he reached his crisis points, when he pivoted in general, because of this interview that you're about to hear and because of other times that we've spoken before. And I'll begin to have him tell his story linearly. But this first one is to give you the full picture. And so we're going to cover everything in this one. Now, to get a few of the things out of the way so that I don't have to ask John what both of us already know, here are some things that you need to know as you listen forward. Again, John has spinal muscular atrophy. It's a condition where he slowly lost the ability to move everything but his face. And so John spends his working hours in a power wheelchair, hooked up with all sorts of doodads that allow him to work with only his face. So if I had video of this recording, John has a rectangular object that's connected to an arm that's in front of his face, and it's a lip mouse. So he's able to move cursor around on a screen using his lips. Most of what he does is with dictation. Now, another thing about SMA is he can feel everything. All of his sensory neurons work, but his motor neurons, except for the ones that directly feed his face, don't. So in the interview that follows, I'm beginning to suss out some of the themes that are in John's story and to begin to, to build what will become this rather epic story that's very different from what the earlier people who wanted John to write his book wanted. They wanted the hallmark version, and John said that's not the truth. There's something else. There's another truth behind it, and I think it's something that's relevant to anybody who is drawing breath. So I hope you enjoy. Here's our talk. Hey, John, how are you? I'm great. Good to be talking again. This is the second time that we've talked about this, but uh, since we decided that we were going to do this, what I'm going to, I'm going to call it a podcast. You can't see it's audio only, but I'm putting it in air quotes because it's kind of a podcast, but it's really our attempting to determine what the story is actually going to be and what's going to go into it. And people might be interested. The idea is that if we have a goal for the book, which we do, which is this idea of teaching the impossible, 
And if you're the main character of this book, even though you're a real person and everything we're going to convey is real, it's um, we want to find a story that is like the focused thread that most clearly conveys this impossible thing, right? Because there's all sorts of things that you've done in your life that have no real relevance to the story that we're trying to tell. So I'm looking at this through the lens of a fiction author. Why did you like the idea of a fiction author being involved in this project with you? Because I think my life more closely resembles fiction than the average autobiography. My In my life, there's a very real story arc with with everything I'm doing. And I think ultimately, even for autobiographies or biographies, often what makes the best ones are the ones that are actually the best stories. And people get a little too obsessed with reporting every detail or reading every detail. I don't think a chronological catalog of everything that's happened in my life would be particularly interesting. But I do think there are certain themes and story arcs that that you've picked out that are actually hard for me to see exactly what they are that will ultimately end up making something that's both true and profoundly enjoyable and impactful for the reader. I actually think that um, anybody who's living their life well has a story embedded in it that feels like fiction, but it's there's too much noise that's baked into like because people get obsessed with, well, my latest Instagram post didn't get enough followers and that feels like a crisis, but it's not. It's really just noise against the background of what you might actually be trying to do with your life. And. I mean, that is the premise of the story solution. The book that I sent you is like life can be like a story, but you have to be able to you need to find the storylines and focus in on the things that are actually relevant. The example that I give is, you know, when we saw The Dark Knight, we didn't watch Bat- Batman watching TV in the evenings. Like for some reason, we only saw the scenes where he was that were relevant to his his crime fighting. So. Uh, we did um, figure out a lot of this stuff last time, and I was going to, regardless of whether we were recording this or not, I was going to kind of read back to you what um, what I got out of the last session because I went and I listened to I listened back to it, and there were some moments where I was like, "Oh, this is awesome! This is exactly the arc that we're that we're looking for." Why this book at all? Why, like, you've had people asking you about it, but I mean, it, it's obvious to me, I've known you, but for people who don't necessarily know, they know that you're a copyright, a copying guy and a writing guy, but they might not know this unstoppable aspect. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm doing it for a few different reasons. One is very self-serving, and that is my story is an asset. It's the reward of having lived so many difficult things. And I've come to a point in my career where I no longer want to be just a copywriting or a blogging guy or even a writing guy. I want to 
step out onto a bigger stage. And part of that process is giving your audience the chance to get to know you. And the way that you do that is by telling your story. And so one of the reasons why I'm doing it, not the only one, is that I think it's necessary for me to get to where I want to go and that it will be immensely beneficial to my career and to my checking account. (laughs) I don't apologize for that either. A lot of people would, but I just, I think it's the way the world works. The other reason is I think that the first step to building the life you want for yourself is believing it's possible. And it's where most people actually get stuck. The reason why so many people procrastinate about building the life they want isn't that they don't know what to do. It's that down deep they feel like this will never work. And I think that my story is the antidote to that particular form of poison. When you say that particular poison, so that's the idea that you know, you may know what you want. I'm sorry, you may know what to do and you may know where you're going, both of those things, but you, you don't, you, and you believe it maybe even on a conscious level, like Uh maybe even you're like, you're like, okay, I can figure out how to do this, but it's not sort of gut deep realization. And, And that's what you really need is that confidence that comes from way down. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. If someone said, would you be willing to bet your life? Where you would say, of course. So how do you, and I know that this is, I'm sure, a big topic and, and we haven't even really broached it, but I, I know, I, I can't think of any particular things, but I've had this realization recently where there's, there's knowing and believing, and I'm a pretty confident person too. So there's knowing and believing, but then there's this extra special level. And I couldn't tell you how to make the leap from one to the other. Do you consciously know how to do that, or is it just repetition and exposure? I think it's repetition and exposure. When I look back at my story, I was less certain of my success, but still willing to bet my life, by the way, than I am now. Now, one of the biggest dangers I have, when you've done the impossible a hundred times, It's very easy to believe that you can always do it. And that's just not true. Eventually, there will come a time where you'll fail. That's just the way life works. If you are a a jujitsu fighter, eventually you're going to come across someone better than you are. And the biggest danger to me now is that after having won so many battles, I automatically assume I'll win the next one. And so I'm not sure it's a good thing. It's actually a bad thing. Or it's a two-edged sword. Because if you go confidently, we both know this phenomenon where, especially if other people are involved, the surety that you bring into it increases your likelihood of success. It does, as long as... You don't go into the territory of, I'm so good, I don't have to prepare. I don't have to take this seriously. 
this person is a joke. This situation is a joke. That's how you end up getting beaten. And thankfully, I've managed to avoid that. But it's by being aware of the danger. Did you always have that awareness? Because we've, and, and I want to, I do want to break down some of the, the, the things that we talked about last time, because I'm wondering if this is the answer here. I don't know. Because we've talked and we've joked, like I, I wrote a post and I, I joked about the big John Morrow ego and you're, you know, I know you embrace that. But is that something, did you have that, I don't know if you would call that it's not exactly humility, but it's a sense of um, fallibility, I would say. Did you did you develop that over time or from the beginning? Were you so overconfident? These are the same thing. Were you so overconfident at the beginning and then you learned it? Or is this something you knew from the beginning that you could you always had to be prepared and couldn't assume? I had huge problems when I was in college. In retrospect, there were small problems. But I got kicked out of computer science at my university because I was so confident that I was better than the teachers. And I probably was, but I looked for ways to make them look foolish in front of the whole class, to embarrass them. And eventually, after two teachers in a row complained about me, despite getting good grades... The chair invited me into his office and said, you can no longer continue in our department. And that's how I became an English major, because <laughs> I got kicked out of computer science. Around the same time, I got kicked out of church, because I got really serious about, I was, was like, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to read the Bible. And so I did. I read it cover to cover like 20 times. I eventually got so familiar with the Bible that I would then raise my hand in church and ask the pastor questions and reference scripture. And it got so disruptive that he asked me not to come back to church. <laughs> what age was that? I was probably like 19, 18, 19. Okay. So this, this actually brings up something that I hadn't even thought about, but you casually mention I raised my hand in church. Were you able to physically raise your hand at age 19? At that time, I think I was. Not very high, but I think I was, yeah. Can you give me the timeline, by the way? Because I, I don't know. I know, I mean, I've, I've read your posts. I know that you had um, physical symptoms that were from when you were born that were clear to the, the doctors that there was something wasn't quite right. But what was the timeline of the progress of SMA? There were a couple of long periods of very slow decline with occasional fast bursts. So I never walked, but I was able to crawl and I was able to stand if assisted. So like if you held onto my shoulders, like I could kind of support myself when I was a child. And that was that was what it that was true at what age? Like two, maybe up until five. I lost that strength when I had spinal surgery. When I was seven, I was in bed for like six months, and that robbed me of a bunch of a bunch of strength. When I got done with that, I could no longer stand or support myself. 
I could still move my arms, but I had pretty much nothing on my legs after that. And how long did you keep mobility in your arms? Until I turned... It was a gradual decline. First, I lost my left arm. Then I lost my right arm at the age of 21, 22, something like that. And the way it happened is I kept getting weaker and weaker. And one day, after I'd graduated, I was going back for a master's class. And on the campus, there was a, a big hill. And I was going down the hill. And my arm slipped forward and pushed the joystick forward to where the chair was going full speed. And I couldn't move my arm back. And so, literally, I was going top speed of the chair down this hill, and I couldn't stop. And there was this couple kissing on the park bench down at the bottom of the hill. And I ran right into the bench and flipped it over. And I was so mortified that I knew at that moment that was the end. And I went to the wheelchair shop, and I said, next option, please. And and so we moved to Sip and Puff. How does that work when you move around in your chair? I have a straw in my mouth, and I, I have four... We have four different directions. We have forward, backward, left, and right. When I want to go forward, I blow in hard. It's what they call a hard puff. And... The chair will keep moving forward until I do a strong sip until I suck in hard. If I blow in hard again, it speeds up. If I want to turn left, I suck in softly. If I want to turn right, I blow in softly. If I want to go backwards, I have to be stopped first, and then I suck in hard. How long did it take you to get the the feel of that? Because I, having seen you do this, your your control is quite precise for something that is being done with breath. I mean, you're getting through doorways and you'll stop and adjust slightly. So how long did it take to figure that out? About two weeks. Okay. So is it not as difficult or you're just a very good student? I'm fast. It's, it's hard. It requires being able to do very precise breaths. And not everyone can do that. Okay. So those people just really need to kind of work on it, obviously, because it's the only option. It is. Either that or be pushed. I'm curious when you are 16, 19, you know, over that spectrum and into, your, into college and you're losing function that you had. And especially since your arc is an emotional arc, which we can talk about in a second. I mean, I can't even imagine. That sounds devastating. It wasn't because it it probably should have been because I'd been with it since birth. Imagine if you were born into a world where everyone became weaker as they got older. It wouldn't be emotionally devastating. It would just be normal. That's just what happens. So I just viewed it as this is normal. This is what happens. And I just accepted it and moved on. But you don't live in a world where that happens with everyone. So you were seeing other people. Did that not bother you? I think this is a a core part of what makes my story my story. When I was a child, I did not view other people as the same. I was in a category of one in my own mind, almost as if we weren't even the same species. That's the way I thought about things. 
See, now that's your answer, but it just prompts more questions for me. It makes me say what you've just described. If you're, I'm still, that still sounds devastating to me because you're, you're alone. I mean, I know you aren't alone. I know you had your parents and you have caregivers and you have friends and all that stuff. But being, if, if I were in that condition, if I were in that, that position and my brain said, well, I'm the only one and in this world, Everyone, meaning me, one person, everyone in this category gets weaker as they go. I mean, do you realize how unique of a viewpoint that is? I don't think most people think that. I think most people would think I'm the only one and that sucks because I'm degenerating and others are not. But that's not what you did. And that's kind of key to this this story in my mind. I mean, so number one, I was lonely all the time. I, I didn't know at the time what to call it. But I was lonely all the time. And my response was anger, not sadness. It was, well, then, fuck you. Mm. I'm going to show you who and what I am. That was my response. I'm wondering if your determination was that thing where it is I'm going to show you. Your power is, is your anger because you're so determined to show everybody. Is that accurate? Yeah. This gets dark, but when when you're on a table in a hospital and the doctor tells you you're going to die, this has happened to me multiple times, there are only two responses to that. The first response is to get very afraid and then die. The second response is fuck you. Those are the only two responses. And I wasn't ready to die. So the fuck you response was all that was left to me at that point. There was a, there's a, I mean, I called it practical belief, choosing what to believe rather than looking at the world and saying objectively, there's a truth out there and I can accept it or bargain with it. It's like this decision to believe what is most practical in the moment. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like the fuck you response to I'm going to die. There's no downside there. No. Because if you're wrong, you're dead. And who cares? Yeah. And if you had asked me, could you be wrong? I would have said yes. I I wasn't like in my own like dream world. I knew that it was an, an irrational response, but I didn't care. Because the the alternative was just unacceptable to me. I wasn't ready to die. When I'm creating a a lead character who's going to go through some sort of a hero's journey, it's best if they don't have, if they have an emotional journey to make. So at the beginning, the hero does not have a trait that they're going to eventually need to succeed. They're going to attempt to do things the way they've always done them in their own comfortable, flawed way, which is driven by a wound. And then they reach a crisis point where they have to go on a journey and then act two, the 50% middle of a movie. So from 25% to 75%-ish of a movie, and it's about the same in a book, is this usually an attempt to get what they want by using the old ways where they're working from their wound. So when we were talking about all of this, and I'm trying to find a story that is both amazing and not relatable at all because it's so unique that you have that impossibility that everybody is going to want it, you know, to learn to do. And I'm trying to square that with this need to have some sort of brokenness at the beginning that you're going to realize and outgrow. 
and and so I started with confidence. I mean, you know, if you remember when we were talking a few days ago, and I said, okay, so when did you get, when did you get this this resilience and confidence and the the you're not going to get in my way. It doesn't matter what's going on with me. I'm going to win. And you said I've always had it. Yep. And you also said, and this is ironic because you just talked about getting weaker. You said I've never felt weak mentally. Yep. And so what we've kind of thought about and we kind of figured out was this idea that you kind of developed an emotional callus. And this sounds like the same sort of thing where the, the arc that you have had beyond your childhood into adulthood and continuing on has been, you've always had this unstoppability. You've always had this idea to take apart and figure out how to make anything work, even if it seems like it should be impossible. But at the same time, you had to say fuck you to the world to do it. You had to be angry to do it. And you told me the other day that you didn't, you had basically no emotion up until an age where you kind of had to begin experiencing some of that. So is that about right? Yeah, totally right. I mean, not only that, but my, the identity that I adopted was as not a human. I didn't even believe I was the same. In what way? The logic at the time was a human could never survive this. Therefore, I am not one. How did that thought feel? Did it feel empowering? Like I'm superhuman or did it feel like a knock? Like I'm not, I don't fit. It felt extremely empowering because I got to believe that I'm the special species with special powers that can survive things that other people can't. But it also felt very lonely because I was the only one. We considered the point where you were in real estate with your dad and he, there was this big, the real estate crash and he had, you know, you went bankrupt and that was the moment where you kind of had to step up. Was that also the moment where the that what I'm calling the emotional callus kind of became evident as a problem, something to, to get past? It became evident slightly before that, but I didn't try to handle it until that happened with my father. So I just kind of ignored it. It became evident in my first business when I started a software company and the company went under. But one of the things I did wrong was... I had no emotional bond with any of my employees. When th things got hard, they just quit. And I was astonished. It was a huge surprise. I'm wondering under which conditions they quit. Like, were you not able to pay them anymore? Were they, was the company like truly going under and they were looking for other conditions? Were you trying to do something that they felt was too risky or too big? When it got down to... We have three months of runway and no certain way of extending it. That, that's when they quit. So they didn't wait until the end. As soon as it became clear that there was going to be an end, they quit. And that pissed you off? Yeah, immensely. It sent me into a depression because I felt abandoned at the time. I don't know if I would have used those words. I didn't even know what words to use for my emotions back then. I knew I was in pain. I knew it hurt. 
and I knew I was angry, but I felt abandoned. I felt like I gave this everything I had and you didn't. So you thought you could pull it out, but you didn't then have the staff. Yeah. And when they left, that, I mean, that, that was the end. I couldn't do it by myself. I felt betrayed. And the rational part of me also recognized that the reason why they left is because they don't believe in you. Does it still seem that way today? Because here's where I'm going with this. So since we're looking at, at this as kind of your 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 journey was this particular thing, this is what has changed most, and there are other act markers that get further in. So if you look back, and this was, this was a moment where you said that the, the, your lack of emotional understanding and attachment and bond to these people was one of the things that it sounds like caused this issue. And you're a different person now, and this was before your crisis point. Do you now, do you feel differently now? Like, do you feel like if you had um, the emotional maturity that you have today that you would have viewed this differently? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think, by the way, if I had had the emotional maturity that I had today, I, I would have quit and told them and tried to make it as painless as I could have for them as possible to find other work. And now I realize these are people who all have their own bills and who are in families and their families were more important to them than my company. That's as it should have been. And at the time I viewed that as a betrayal. Now I view that as I was completely blind, completely blind. I didn't understand them at all. So if, because you used a word there that you don't use very often, especially a string of words, you said, I would have quit. And quitting is something that is exactly the opposite of what's going to happen in most of this story. So I'm curious if, I mean, the, the, the hero arc here is you learning emotional maturity, and there's a lot more to it than that, but that is kind of the core of it. And so, I'm curious if your development on that that arc, do you feel that it to any degree made you less tenacious and less determined because you you would now have quit something that you were determined to do before? So if you had asked me this question, even just five years ago, I would have given you a totally different answer. Now I recognize if you were a leader and there are people following you, and you are facing a no-win situation where, where the outcome is not, I mean, we're not saving the planet here. We're, at the time, I was building a software company. When, when the outcome is not more important than the lives of the people who are following you, the mature and healthy thing to do is to surrender and live to fight another day and go start another company and recruit the same people and they will respect and love you because they realize that you put them ahead of your own ego. So wh what is your stance today vis-a-vis -vis, um, empathy, the stuff you were just talking about, and determination? Is it that you are 
just as determined as ever when it is you and your consequences, but the equation, let's say, becomes bigger when there are other people involved. And I think one of the hardest, it even goes beyond that, it even applies to me personally. I recently left the United States after years of battling to get nurses. And it was me tapping out, me saying, I quit, I'm done, next round. And what a younger me didn't understand, and some of my biggest mistakes, have been actually fighting for too long. There are times where the smartest thing you can do is recognize when something isn't working and change course. And it, it took me until probably 38, 39 years old to really understand that. Okay. Let me do sort of a compare and contrast here. So everything you just said versus the stories that you've told, and maybe you should retell one of them, about defeating um, something that didn't feel like it was in your control, pneumonia, by um, force of sheer will. Now, I mean, I think I could suss out the difference, but I'd, I think I'd like to hear it from you because that is a case where there is zero surrender. There's zero bargaining. It is everything. And then you're talking about the situation where you say, I'm going to, I'm going to tap out because the situation in the U S isn't working with healthcare. So I'm going to go live to fight another day. It's, it's about the stakes. Pneumonia was life and death. Tapping out would have been dying. Was everything, did you feel like everything looking back, did you treat everything like it was life and death before? Yes. To what age? Probably until 38 years old. And you're how old now? 40, about, about turned 41 later this month. But by the way, sidebar, how long were you supposed to live according to your earliest doctors? Two years. Two. And then they amended it once you passed two. Kind of, sort of. They kind of, sort of just shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't know. <laughs> Did you ever get another updated estimate? No. Not that I'm aware of. It's possible my mother got one. But at but my mother was of a mindset at that time. She wouldn't have paid it any attention. Well, that's something that we covered earlier is that when you were too young to formally have any of these attitudes yourself... And it was your mother who instilled them in you. It was almost like her determination became your determination. It evolved and, and took root within you. Yeah, it definitely did. I got it from her. Is she this determined about everything like as you are? She used to be. Now she's in her late 60s and she's tired. She doesn't want to fight anymore. And I don't blame her. But, but yeah, she used to be. So if you didn't feel... Uh, if you, if you said that there was a time when you, you didn't feel human, and when we talked about this before, in your words, the, um, the arc seemed to be, the lesson that you had to learn seemed to be about learning to be human, uh -huh. to not be so um, driven that it became callous and that it became reckless for other people. Um, how long, when did you start feeling human? Assuming you do. I do. Um, it, was, it was around when I started dating. I was about 31. That's when I really confronted it. Had it just built to the point where you couldn't ignore it anymore? And there were things that were falling apart because you were so strong about everything? I'd learned to pretend and manipulate. Not in a destructive way. I was never trying to hurt anyone. But I'd gotten very good at manipulating people. I was a great salesperson. And that's 
one thing, two things happened. I started getting around other successful entrepreneurs and seeing and hearing about their own journey, which the whole thing about not feeling human actually happens in a lot of entrepreneurs. Being around other entrepreneurs was the first time I didn't feel alone. And then you saw from from them some of the same lessons that you needed to learn? I realized that there was that there were lessons. At the time in the beginning, I didn't know what what they were, but I knew consciously that other that there were things I needed to learn and that other people had already learned them. And seeing that gave me a desire to learn them as well. Because there were benefits that they were having from those things or lack of obstructions that they were having because of those lessons because they'd learned They were immensely happier and more fulfilled and calmer, more at peace than I was. And I wanted that. When I was listening back to um, our last call, and there's this section where you talked about the children of the light and the children of the dark, and you were born in the dark with where there were monsters. It's this wonderful segment that I should we should probably pull that segment. It's wonderful and, and share it somewhere. So when I was listening to that, um, I, I've we've been considering to, now, I, obviously just just loosely, but we kind of liked the feel of um, David Goggins's book, Can't Hurt Me, Not Can't Help Me, as I <laughs> wrote by mistake <laughs> in a blog post. Um, we, we'd been considering that to be sort of, I would say a rough parallel. And, and so I'm listening to that book at the same time as, you know, on and off with when listening to back to ours. And I had this, this, uh, this idea that I want to get your reaction to, and it's almost intentionally, uh, simplistic, but I just want to hear what you think. So his journey for people who don't know, David Goggins wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me, and he's a Navy SEAL. And the whole thing is about learning to be strong and, and hard, right? Like like developing like a just this mental unbreakability um, to the point of obsession, really. And so I was thinking about how his story is about learning to be hard and learning to be, you know, unbreakable. But Interestingly, the real true heart of your story, to some degree, feels like it's the opposite. It's learning not to be so hard, learning to be just a little soft. What do you think about that? I was born like David Goggins. That's who I was as a kid. So you've got a Benjamin Button situation going with the David Goggins In some ways, but also, so I don't know David Goggins. I've never talked to him. But when I watch interviews with him... I see a man that's in the same prison I used to be in. In terms of being so hard and determined that maybe less relatable. Uh-huh. And I, the very little I know about him, I think he's had like a whole bunch of wives, a whole bunch of failed relationships. So that's evidence to me that something is wrong. So you like that idea of that you've, you've kind of been ungogginsing yourself, that that is kind of your journey? I'm still just as strong, but I'm less alone. How do you square those two things, John? Because I think a lot of people would say that they are to some degree warring for space. That single-minded determination that I am right, everyone else is wrong, at least about certain things. You know, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm going to get through this with sheer will. And, and you're squaring that with this um, desire to connect and have empathy 
that requires that you back away from that a little bit. So how do they find peace within you? All entrepreneurs are that way. One of my mentors, and now a dear friend, is named Alex Scherfen. He's a very successful CEO. He's now in his 50s, I think. And Alex has a book where he talks about the entrepreneurial personality type. And it's not just psychological, not just, it's not at all just psychological drivel. It's actually an investigation into the history of entrepreneurship. And he draws fairly solid connections to the hunter-gatherers of old. That if you were a hunter, your job was to hunt, to attack, to kill, to be strong for your tribe. But you were still a part of a tribe. That's the way I resolve it. Yeah, because you said that you kind of related to the children of Sparta um, legends, where they were made tough just through being beaten and cruelty to some degree of emotional alienation, certainly. does Is that a fair parallel because they were still part of Sparta? Because it, I mean, I, I don't know, like, I mean, I've only, the only parts of Sparta that I've seen in any detail are from 300, yeah. right? Like I don't, I haven't studied it, but um, it seems to me, it doesn't seem to me a happy life, even if you're part of Sparta. So is, is that a fair comparison or am I missing nuance? It gives your life meaning. It gives your suffering meaning. Um, and you realize, um, by the way, I still think of myself as different from a non-entrepreneur or from a non-hunter. My, my real, all of my friends are entrepreneurs on some level. And it's because it's who I feel close to. But I view other people now as not a different species, but people with a different role to play. Okay, everybody, just Johnny here again. We're doing this episode of this podcast as a pilot. There's no point in us continuing to record all of our sessions if people aren't interested, if people aren't listening. So please, if you are listening and you're listening uh, on a directory, iTunes or Spotify or anything like that, make sure you subscribe and you can rate or leave comments. Please do that. That makes a huge difference if you just click and give us, you know, five-star review, hopefully, or if you leave us a review, that would really help. You can also contact us directly. You can get John's team at support at smartblogger.com. Those emails will be routed to him. But John said the easiest way to get a hold of him is actually on Twitter. So that is just at John Morrow without the H, J-O-N-M-O-R-R-O-W. I am not on any social media whatsoever. Please visit my website. It's johnnybtruant.com. And I do have the H, J-O-H-N-N-Y-B-T-R-U-A-N-T. Subscribe to the site. That will keep you maximally in the loop. But then please respond to anything in there and let me know. Give me some feedback. Let me know if you liked this, if you want me to ask other things, if you have questions for John. Any of that can come to my website. There's even a post near the top called The Impossible Man that's all about this project. You can leave comments on that. You can email me at johnny at johnnybtruant.com. Thanks so much. And hopefully talk to you next time.